Well, if you have your Bible, let's go to Hebrews chapter 10. You know, one of the hardest things for me on, on Easter Sunday is just deciding where to preach. You know, it's just the resurrections everywhere. It's all over scripture. I mean, literally hundreds and hundreds of places we could go and talk about the risen Jesus. And so that's honestly, as a, as a pastor who is committed to just walking through scripture, like in Psalm 119, I just, we just pick that and then I can just, I know what's coming next. You know, it's pretty easy. And now it's like, I got to figure out where to go. So that was a tough one for me. And you may wonder, why in the world did you go to Hebrews 13? Well, I, hopefully by the time we're done, you'll be like, wow, that is just so good. How we see the resurrection all over the word of God. Easter Sunday is really an interesting day. It's a day where culturally we have things like bunnies and eggs. Uh, maybe you grew up religious, maybe you didn't, but you may have done something religious on Easter. You know, you get a new dress. I didn't get new clothes as a kid. Girls always got dresses. I didn't get new anything. But you know, you get something new, you take a family picture. Um, even if you, if you are religious or not, you get, you get, you get together with family. Um, and that's just kind of this, we've kind of built up the Easter holiday. And, and I appreciate that in some ways because it is the most important holiday for the Christian faith. Truly, I mean, the virgin birth and the resurrection of Jesus, like we, you gotta have both, right? So this is a massive day for those of us who know Jesus. But I think we lose a little bit of the importance of it because we tend to focus kind of on this like, we're all full of joy and hope and happiness because Jesus rose from the dead. But really, what does that do for me tomorrow? Like, how does that really change my life that Jesus is alive? So what? We have a day and we eat food and we hang out and we all act like we're happy. But really, like, how does that change me tomorrow and the next day? Yes, it's part of our redemption and we need Jesus to rise, as we'll see this morning, to be saved. But is there more to it than that? And we want to this morning look into scripture and see how the resurrection declares that God didn't just raise Jesus from the dead. It declares that God is for you. God's on your side because Jesus rose from the dead. And that is a massive thing for us to say because God should not be on your side. If anybody on the face of the planet should be against you, it's God. Because from the moment you were born, you've run from him. And so he shouldn't be on your side. But because of the resurrection, this God is for you. And he's for me. And so we want to walk through this this morning and just come away, I, I trust, with a hope. A true hope. A lasting hope. Because God is for you. So take your Bible, if you're not already there, Hebrews, Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13. And let's read these few verses together. Do two short verses this morning. Hebrews 13, beginning in verse 20. Now, now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Father God, as we turn to your word this morning, we ask you right now to do a work in us. For some of us here, this is the 50th Easter service or the 60th or 70th Easter service. For some of us, it might be our first Easter service. 
wherever we are in our Christian walk and our journey of faith, would you draw near to us this morning? Would you be a God of immense hope? Father, we live in a hopeless world, a world full of turmoil, wrecked by grief. But there is a risen Savior, and he speaks into our despair. And so, Father, would your word this morning, would it minister to us by your grace? Would it not return void? And would you be exalted in all that we say and do? And in Christ's name, amen. So I've got two simple points this morning, and they're not that impressive. They're really not that impressive. The first one is the weight of the resurrection theologically, and the second is the weight of the resurrection practically. That's it. That's the whole text this morning. So we're going to start off with point number one, the weight of the resurrection theologically. And you're like, wow, you really failed how to make this exciting. Like you actually brought up the theology word this morning. I mean, that just kills everything right there, doesn't it? Well, actually, church, our theology matters a lot. How we think directly dictates how you live. Let me say that again. How you think directly dictates how you live. Theology is simply what you think about God. And you know what? All of us are theologians. But are you ready for this? Some of us are really bad theologians. And I'm not trying to be mean. The process of sanctification is to actually a process of being a better theologian, thinking better about God, right? Think right about God, and guess what? Then you'll live more for the glory of God. So we want to think right about God this morning. So that's when I say we want to understand the weight of the resurrection theologically. It's because it's going to have direct impact on your life. And for some of us, we really don't think about the resurrection biblically, theologically. And Hebrews 13, 20 presses us, if you will, into thinking deeply about the resurrection. He is going to like drive it home and press it deep so that we are like, oh, wow. That's what he's talking about. So let's dive into Hebrews 13, 20 this morning and see how the resurrection, uh, the weight of it theologically. Verse 20 says this, now the God of peace. Now the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant. Now Hebrews 13, 20 and 21, as your Bible may say like mine, is the benediction. It's the closing of the book. It is the very last words, if you will. I mean, he's got a few things afterwards, but those are just greetings that are really not consequential to the theme of the book of Hebrews. But in verses 20 and 21, he is gonna tie the entire book of Hebrews together, put a bow on it and say, boom, I'm done. I finished this letter and I'm gonna wrap it up for you and here it is. And in verse 20, I actually think he he summarizes everything he's already talked about, which if you read Hebrews is pretty amazing because Hebrews is a phenomenal book with depth beyond any of our brains. And so he's going to walk us through in a few ways, the high points of Hebrews to tie us into how God works for us. So in verse 20, we need to start off with just a simple title for God. Now the God of peace. Now the God of peace. This is a reference to the very character of our God. You know, there are religious systems in the world that when you ask them, is your God a God of peace? Their answer is no. 
He is not a God of peace. There's a lot of supposed deities that the world believes in. They are vengeful, angry, hostile deities. There's no grace, there's no love, there's no peace. And here the writer of scripture says, the God of peace. It's interesting that this title though doesn't exist in the first two thirds of your Bible, the Old Testament. In in Judges 6.24, he says, um, he says Yahweh Shalom, which is Jehovah is peace, right? Jehovah is our peace. He gets close to it. In the Old Testament, you see a lot of conversation about God bringing peace. But really we see in the New Testament this development of the God of peace, a title for God. It was even hinted at in Isaiah 9.6, right? What's Jesus called in 9.6? The Prince of Peace. He's coming and when he comes, he'll bring peace. But here's the problem. When we read that little phrase, God of peace, we have a problem. We have an issue, a massive issue. Sinners cannot be at peace with God. We can't be. I mean, if we just were to take this for face value, rip it out of context, say God of peace, we would say, time out. I'm not at peace with God. Like I spent my whole life running from that God. There's no peace with God and humanity post Genesis 3. You, after the fall of sin, right? And then we continue to live in sin. We're not at peace with God. Do you ever just lay there in shame over your sin? God, there is no way you can love me. Are you ever wrecked by the guilt of your sin? Are you ever wrecked by the reality that you know you deserve the judgment of God for your sin? I mean, just like, honestly, if you just neglect the work of Jesus, let's just act like Jesus, the work of Jesus isn't there. It's just you before the creator. There is, God is not a God of peace. I was talking to a man this week about a, a loved one who was on death's door and, and it's apart from the work of Christ, the thought of death is terrifying. Why? Because God is not a God of peace to you. And the thought that you might have to meet that God terrifies you. It's why every religious system in the world comes up with a system for what's after death because that God is not a God of peace. And here's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus, in his suffering on the cross, he did not know peace with God so that you could know peace with God. That's the point of the cross. In that moment, Jesus knew nothing but the wrath of God that we deserved so that you and I could know the peace of God. The one who deserved the peace of God got the wrath of God so that those who deserve the wrath of God could get the peace of God. That is the beauty of the gospel. When the author of Hebrews says, now may the God of peace do something to you. The only reason he could even say that is because he fully understands what Jesus endured under the wrath of God for people like you and me. And if you read the book of Hebrews, it's everywhere. The atoning sacrifice for sin. So the solution is that this savior, the savior didn't know peace. Just I wanna walk you through this briefly. In Romans 5, 9, we see that Jesus knew the wrath of God. Listen to these words. Since therefore we now have been justified, that's to be declared righteous by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him, by Jesus, from the wrath of God. How did Jesus save you and I from the wrath of God? Well, he took it. You see, God didn't just say, ah, you know what? Justin, you're a good guy. I'm just gonna sweep your sin under the rug and I'll just act like it didn't happen. Because if God did that, he's no longer God because he ignored evil. 
He has to deal with it. Just like a good judge has to deal with moral evil. If he doesn't deal with moral evil, he's not a good judge. If God doesn't deal with sin, he is not a good God. It cannot exist in his presence. So what does he do? He delivers sinners from the wrath of God by pouring out the wrath of God on a substitute, namely Jesus. So Jesus knew wrath so that we could know peace. Mark 15, 34 says, tells us this, that Jesus was forsaken by God so that we could be embraced by God. Listen to Mark 15, 34. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does that sound like a God of peace? In that moment, Jesus did not know a God of peace. He knew a God who left him alone to die so that we could know peace. That's how God is a God of peace to us today because Jesus was forsaken. And then in Colossians 1.20, Jesus knew death. Jesus knew death so that we could know life. And through him, through Jesus, to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, now catch this, making peace by the blood of his cross. That is an oxymoron. That is like one of those, wait a second, bloody, cruel crucifixion, whipping, lashes, thorns on the head, nailed to a cross, naked for all to see, the ultimate act of suffering and shame in the history of humanity, making peace by the blood of the cross. Like that's the point of the death of Jesus, that he knew nothing of the peace of God. He only knew the wrath of God so that we might know the peace of God. So in this little phrase, may the God of peace, it screams the gospel. And if we are gonna understand the resurrection at all this morning and we are gonna embrace it and then live it out in our lives, it's gonna begin with us saying, God, the only reason that I know peace with you is because Jesus didn't. And this morning, if you aren't there, you need to be saved. If you, are, if you this morning can hear that and just be like, yeah, whatever, you need to be on your knees and say, God, I deserve what Jesus got. That's the heart of the gospel. The heart of repentance is I deserve what Jesus got. And I want to know peace with God because I can't. Going to church won't do it. Being a good moralist won't do it. Being a religious person isn't enough. Being successful in your life, marriage, career, whatever, isn't enough. You will never know the peace of God unless you repent of your sins and say, God, I deserved to know the wrath of God, but now I've been given peace. So when we begin to think about the resurrection theologically from Hebrews 13:20, it begins with this God of peace, but only through the cross. All right, next phrase. We have peace with God. Now, he, who brought again from the dead? Who brought again from the dead? Now, obviously, this is why I'm preaching this text on Easter Sunday. Because here we have a simple statement of Jesus is alive. He, this God brought Jesus back. And it's so interesting that actually the point of this text is in verse 21. He's gonna ask God for something. Your Bible, like mine, probably says in verse 20, now may the God of peace. Is that word may there in your Bible? He's asking God for something. But you know that request doesn't start until verse 21. The, verse, the, the request is, so in verse 20, all he's doing is rehearsing theology. Because in verse 21, he's gonna say, now God, may you equip me. And it reads funny in English, so they threw the, verse, they threw the word back earlier. 
but really he's just getting to the point of, God, this is who you are, and this is what you've done. And after I establish that, I'm gonna ask you for something. But he's just gonna walk us through what God has done. Well, listen to this. He raised Jesus from the dead. I mean, this is the ultimate fulfillment of Genesis chapter three. The grand story of scripture is massively important this morning. Like where everything started. Listen to Genesis 3.15. I will put, this is God talking. I will put enmity, hostility, between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, just a real quick time out. Theologians are, are pretty convinced, and I, I agree with this, that in the Old Testament, when, when the, God is visible and God is speaking, it is the person of Jesus. So the God who gave the curse in Genesis 3 is the God who suffers under the curse in Hebrews 13, and is the God who rose from the dead and defeated the curse. Are you tracking with me? I mean, this is just mind-blowing things for us as followers of Jesus. He fulfilled the prophecy of Genesis 3. Well, how did he fulfill it? Well, in Genesis 3, he says to the serpent, you'll bruise his heel. When did Satan think he won? The death of Jesus. I just killed God. I rallied the Roman world. I rallied the Jewish world. I killed God. I mean, Judas, Judas, he betrayed him. It's all working, man. Oh, what a good day. He bruised the heel and Jesus crushed his head when he rose from the dead. He fulfilled what he said was coming in Genesis 3. Thousands of years later, Jesus does it and our savior is alive. The prophecy of Genesis 3 is fulfilled. Listen to these words in Hebrews 2.14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise, that's a reference to the savior, Jesus. Jesus partook of the same. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. I mean, right there. He destroyed it. He annihilated it. Satan had the power of death and he holds it over humanity. And Jesus comes onto the scene and he crushes that power of death. Well, not only was the prophecy fulfilled, but it was fulfilled in in a variety of ways. We see that This God who brought again from the dead, Jesus, he did so because the payment for our sins was accepted in full. Accepted in full. Listen to Acts 2.24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. What an amazing statement. It was not possible for death to hold Jesus. So we look at like coming back from the dead and we're like, Golly, how's that going to work? I mean, I I go down, I'm in the grave, and nobody comes back. Acts 2.24 is the other side. He goes, it it wasn't even possible for him to stay in it. It wasn't like, oh my goodness, he popped out of the grave. It was like, what did you think was going to happen? The grave couldn't hold him because there was no sin in him. And since there was no sin in him, he he didn't suffer under the curse of death. So of course he was going to raise. That's why he said over and over, kill me. I'm going to rise from the dead in three days because death cannot hold me. And God accepted this payment. I mean, in full, in full. So we, uh, we moved down here, you know, a few months back and 
we sold our house. You know when you log online to pay your mortgage and you see how much money is left to be paid? It's kind of one of those like deflating moments. You realize how much you still owe on your house and it's not really your house, right? You're paying it off. Well, there was this brief moment that, that we sold our last house, right? We had to pay off that mortgage and then we buy another house. And there was, we, there was this moment the mortgage showed up on our, on our balance, you know, when you log in, paid in full. I was like, well, that's cool. That's pretty awesome. I mean, it doesn't really help me at all because I'm not living there anymore, right? So it's paid in full, but now I owe on this other house, so big deal. But it's, it's really, we, we get that, paid in full. I don't owe anything. When Jesus, or when God raised Jesus from the dead, it was the payments accepted in full. You can't do anything more. Like you, you simply can't. God will not be more pleased with you in regards to your position in Christ. You're fully his because the payment was made in full. Not only was it made in full, but the resurrection means that righteousness is possible and it is a reality. Listen to Romans 4.25. This, this is a great answer to the question, why was Jesus raised from the dead? He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our what? Justification. Justification is the word to be declared righteous by God. Jesus rose, making it possible for you and I to actually be righteous. He didn't just pay the debt. He gave us what we could never earn. Now, we're gonna get there in a minute that this passage actually calls us to live righteously. But here we're talking about what God does in you at the moment you're saved, he declares you to be something you're not. You're not righteous. Newsflash. I'm not righteous. We can't stand before God because there can be no sin in his presence. Do you realize it's not enough for God to simply forgive you? Forgiven sinners still go to hell because you're still a sinner. Righteous people stand before God. So he had to give you righteousness. Are you you tracking with that? He had to, and the resurrection guarantees it. He says he rose to death for your justification that you can now be declared righteous. And as I've already touched on, I just want to say it one more time. When we're thinking about the resurrection means that Jesus won, God raised him from the dead. We must mention this. The resurrection means that we know deliverance from the wrath of Almighty God. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 And we wait for the son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is the context of the end of the world. God is going to come again and judge the sins of the world. But he says, all who trust in Jesus are delivered already. Why? Because the wrath of God was entirely spent on him for you. So he delivers us from the wrath of God of God. This is fascinating because in the New Testament, after the resurrection of Jesus, it's hard to find a proclamation of the gospel that doesn't include the resurrection. And for us today, we kind of assume it. We just like, oh yeah, Jesus rose from the dead. But it was such a big deal that the apostolic, the apostles preaching the cross, they always went back to the resurrection. Because if he didn't rise, Big deal. He didn't defeat the wrath of God. He didn't defeat the judgment of God. He didn't do anything. He just died. And you know what? Since the death of Jesus, there have been a lot of pseudo-messiahs, pseudo-saviors, liars, false teachers who say things like, I'm going to rise from the dead, or I'm not going to die. Yeah, how'd that go for him? 
It doesn't work. He's the only one. And the resurrection changed everything. And so what we see in verse 20 is that not only is God a God of peace, but this God brought Jesus back from the dead, declaring Jesus has won. Entirely, emphatically, he has won. And so folks, we are on the right team if you're in Christ. We are on his side, not by our own merits, but because of his work. Let's continue to walk through this verse. Remember I mentioned the word order is kind of, kind of messed up here. So just follow me, okay? The God of peace, he brings from the dead. And the next words are not our Lord Jesus. The next words are the great shepherd of the sheep. That's how the original text reads. He brings back from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep. And here, what he's doing when he says the great shepherd of the sheep is he is magnifying the supremacy of the Savior. Hebrews is all about the supremacy of Jesus. Jesus is better than, and you just fill in the blank, he's it. Jesus is better than. He's it. He's the one. And it's Hebrews is also littered with Old Testament references because he's writing to people that knew their Old Testament well and they were trying to prop up the gospel with these Old Testament things. He says, no, Jesus is better. Jesus is better in every way. So actually this verse, when he says the great shepherd of the sheep, it's a reference to Isaiah 63, 11. Listen to these words. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people where he where, where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? We have the same language here. And in the Septuagint, the, the translation of the Old Testament into Greek, it's the exact same words. So he's saying here that there is this God who brought again, you see that in, in Isaiah 63, 11, the shepherd, the great shepherd. See what he's saying in Isaiah 63 is Moses was the shepherd. What did Moses do? He brought his people out of Israel. Then there's a God who brought Jesus back from the dead. And he's connecting the images for us to say what Moses did was good, but what God did is way better. This is good for the people of Israel as a pictorial lesson of what God's gonna do in the Messiah. He is gonna bring him back from the dead and he is the great shepherd of the sheep. Just listen for a moment how Jesus is better. In Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, Jesus Jesus speaks a better word, remember? In last days, last times, he spoke to us through the prophets and the apostles, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his what? Son, whom he anointed the heir of all things. He's not discrediting scripture. He's simply saying, it's all going to Jesus. It's all about him, and now he speaks. In Hebrews 1, 4 through chapter two, Jesus is better than the angels. Do we have a messed up angelology today? Oh my goodness, not offending anybody here, but angels are not things that go on bookshelves, right? They're not figurines that we, we think are, are cute. They were designated as ones who serve the creator, who worship him, and the Hebrews, they had the same problem we have today. They had a bad angel, angelology. And so what does he do? He says, Jesus is better. Stop going to these angels and demons stuff. Go to Jesus. You need Jesus. And so he says, Jesus is better than all of those. Hebrews 3, he's, he, we, we see it again, he's greater than Moses. Moses was the greatest of all the prophets, right, for Israel. 
I mean, this guy was unreal. He stood before Pharaoh. He did the plagues. He led them through the sea. Things come down from heaven to eat every day. I mean, this guy is legit. And they, they really worshiped Moses. And he says, Jesus is better than Moses. He is better. Then we have Hebrews 4, man. He's gonna hit all these things. He is better than the Sabbath because Jesus is the ultimate rest. So he's like, hey, you guys worship the Sabbath, that day where you can't do anything? Well, guess what? Jesus is the Sabbath, and he is your rest, so he is better. Verse chapters four through seven are a big chunk of the book. He's better. He is a better high priest. So these guys, they go into the holy place. They've got to do their sacrifices. Guess what? Jesus is better. Why? Because he is both the sacrifice and the priest, and he's going to do it once and for all, and it's done. Jesus is better. Hebrews 8 to 10, then after the priest, it's Jesus is a better covenant. Oh, the old covenant is good. But what Jesus instituted that was prophesied throughout the Old Testament is better. It's more superior because Jesus is better. And he is this shepherd of the sheep. I love the the text here. If you have it in front of you, he says, the shepherd of the sheep, the great one. Like there's been lots of those who shepherd God's people, the word shepherd was the idea of leading kindly. Jesus is the great one, the supreme one. There is no other. And so we can follow him. I mean, how can we talk about the the shepherd who is the great one without thinking of things like Psalm 23? That's ultimately fulfilled in who? Jesus, the great shepherd who leads you kindly and tenderly through all the trials of life. Jesus is the great shepherd. But then he finishes with this in verse 20. This savior, this Lord, he established the eternal covenant. Look at this verse, look at the end of this verse, by the blood of his eternal covenant. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead the Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. He's getting us somewhere and he's like stepping over himself to say, hey, you really gotta get this. You really need to understand what's going on here. This blood of the eternal covenant is massively important. You see, there had never been a sufficient sacrifice. Meaning there had never been a sacrifice that said, all right, all done, enough, no more bloodshed. We've seen enough, enough animals, enough oxen, all done. There'd never been one. Since the original sin in the garden, sacrifices were a part of the fabric of daily life. Regular life revolved around this idea of sacrifice as a constant reminder, sin equals death. That was the point. Sin, death. And you know what? You should die, but there's a substitute that God will let die in your place. That's the point. And you read the Old Testament and what you see over and over is sin equals sacrifice. Because God is a God of mercy and he's not killing you for your sin. He lets something else die in your place. Folks, on this side of the cross, we know exactly where he's going, don't we? We know what he's doing. He's showing us, hey, there's something better coming. And here we see the blood of the eternal covenant. Jesus is the final and perfect sacrifice. Just flip two pages back in your Bible maybe to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verses eight through 10. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, These are offered according to the law. Then he added, 
Behold, I have come to do your will. He, meaning Jesus, he does away with the first order, the first covenant, in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Do you know why we don't believe in any sort of system that says you earn grace with God? Because it was once for all. We don't believe in any system that says now you go to church and then you have to do this and if you do this, you get more grace, redemptive grace from God. Because if we believe in that, we're going back to some sort of system of continuing sacrifices. We don't kill Jesus every communion. He is dead and he then rose. And we celebrate the resurrection. It's not a continual death. We don't need to do that because he died once for all. Just walk you through quickly. Remember the biblical story, right? Adam and Eve, they're in the garden and they get kicked out. What does God do? He puts angels with flaming swords, seraphim, cherubim type angels, and they stand there before the garden guarding the temple. And then regarding the, the, uh, the, the uh, garden. Then he gives, he gives instructions to create a tabernacle, the place where God would dwell. And he has the Holy of Holies, which is the presence of God. Now think with me, in the garden, the presence of God is with Adam and Eve every day. You tracking here? In the temple, he's saying, I'm trying to get back to where I dwell with my people. You know that's God's, God's big, God's end game is dwelling with his people. It's what he started with. It's what he's going to end with. And everything in the middle is how he's going to do it. So he kicks you out of the garden and he puts angels there and says, don't come in. Then he says, here, I'm going to have a tabernacle, a temple where you're going to dwell or I'm going to dwell with you in the middle. If you, and if you know much about Hebrew, or, uh, yeah, Hebrew history, the temple was in the middle of the congregation, right in the center of the people because God was in the middle of his people. But he says, I'm going to dwell in this thing called the Holy of Holies, this little cube box room thing. And I'm, I want you to put a curtain, a curtain in front. And on that curtain, what are you going to embroider? Two angels with, with their flaming swords crossed. Why? Because you can't come in. You can't come into the presence of God because of your sin. As one of our favorite children's books says, because of your sin, you can't come in. Right? So you've got sin and you can't come in. And that curtain stayed there for thousands of years. And there was one guy once a year on the day that Jesus died, he would walk in, right? And he would make atonement for the sins of the people. And he would be in the presence of God. And he was the one person who went into that presence, right? And then there's the once for all sacrifice. And what happens to the curtain? It's torn in two because he says, now, you can all come in. Now you can come into my presence because there's no more sacrifices to be made. Now the thing that you couldn't do because of your sin, now you can. And that's why the book of Hebrews exists because they didn't get it. It was like, what would time out? No more priests? No more sacrifices? I mean, don't we've got to do some religious duty to get to God? He says, no, no, I did it all. A once for all sacrifice so that wretched people like us can be forgiven based on the work of Jesus. So like Hebrews says this, he is the sure and steadfast anchor of our souls. Why? Because he is a sure and better sacrifice. 
That's why. So we have confidence because he's a better sacrifice. The resurrection folks declares that God is massively for you. He tore that curtain and he said, now you are welcome into my presence. Hebrews 13, 20 is so rich and sweet. This God of peace who raised Jesus from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of his covenant. And this actually isn't in my notes, but just as an interesting comment for you to think about. In your Bible, it says, our Lord Jesus. Well, actually, the word, those, those words, our Lord Jesus, are, are translated this way. The Lord, the master, our Jesus. What is the word Jesus. It's Yahweh saves, Yahweh will save. The God of the Old Testament, it's the Joshua name. He will save. Our master is our savior. And these, those words, the Lord our savior, are at the very end of verse 20 because the book of Hebrews constantly takes words out of order, shoves them somewhere to make them more emphatic. Like if you were to write a letter and then you want a point so you purposely mess up your grammar, That's what Hebrews does. It's which makes it the hardest book in the Greek language to translate because he's moving words around to get the point through our thick heads. And after all of what he says about God raising Jesus, the shepherd of the sheep, the blood of the covenant, he says, our kurios, our master, and our Jesus, our savior. He is both Lord and he is both savior. So, There is significance theologically to the resurrection, amen? We can't just skip this morning into a a happy-go-lucky, oh, it's so beautiful, Jesus rose from the dead. Yes, it is, but it has incredible weight to it. And then what's fascinating here is the whole point of verse 20 is to get us to see the practical realities of the resurrection. That's what he's doing. He's tying it together for us. Now look at what he's done. Look at who he is. We're gonna ask God to do something. Theologians call verse 21 a prayer wish because it's a word that's in a certain uh, declension in the Greek language that actually is a request. It's a request that assumes an answer. You follow me here? So he's not saying like, well, God, would you please do this? But you probably won't. He's actually gonna use a request that demands an answer and expects it. So over and over, this is seen in the New Testament, this particular Um, this particular kind of verb is communicating that you will answer. You will do something. So let's look at the weight of the resurrection practically. Practically. May this God, may he equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is what I call street level theology. He's like gonna get right down in our kitchen and say, here's how it's gonna affect you. Here's what it does for you. He goes from these grand lofty thoughts to right into our home. It's where the road meets the road. How do I live for God? Okay, so Jesus died and Jesus rose, I get that. Jesus conquered sin and death, I get that. But what about me today? Like right here, right now, what does that mean for me today? Hebrews 13, 21 puts that right before us. What does it mean for me today? Well, the first thing we see in verse 21 is God works both in you and through you. Look at verse 21. May this God equip you with everything good 
and then skip a few words, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. So he's this, may he equip you and may he work in you. We're going to look at those two together because they really mean the same thing. The first thing that he would give you everything good. May this God equip you. Now we understand the word equip, right? It's that you are, you are enabled to do something. If you equip me in a certain skill, you teach it to me so that I can do it on my own. That's what equipping means. It means you get educated, you get taught, you get enabled, and now you're equipped. So he says, God, would you equip me? Would you work in me? How? With everything good. It's an interesting phrase. And I'm going to connect it back to the God of grace. Because the God of grace delights in giving grace. And this grace that he gives is often in scripture referred to as his good things. Everything good then is a reference to his grace. Listen to 1 Peter 5.10. After you've suffered a while, the God of all grace, who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ, will himself, listen to this, he's going to restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you. By what? By his grace. He's going to give you everything good so that you can walk with him, so that you can live for him. Romans 15, 13, may the God of hope, I love that title for God, the God of hope, may he fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. The God of hope fills you with his power and spirit that you would abound in hope. So he says here in Hebrews 13, 21, God, would you equip me with everything good? How is that not a reference to his amazing excuse me, and lavish grace that he's promised to give to us. Hebrews 1, or Ephesians 1 kind of grace, right? That this God who will give to you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, he already has done it. You know that God's not holding out on you? It's not like, well, heaven's gonna get better, but this time stinks. No, it's he's giving you everything now. He's good today. His grace is sufficient today. He says, God, would you equip me right now with everything good you possess. Just let your mind wander everything good that God possesses. That's an amazing statement. He said, would you give that to me? Would you be gracious to me in that way? Would you give me everything good? I mean, here's we just see that gospel grace is both saving and transforming grace. It's the grace that saves you, but it's the grace that keeps you and transforms you. How can we not think of Titus 2.11? For by the grace, for the grace of God has appeared, that's a reference to this once for all sacrifice, the grace for God appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly, worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. And so you may be here this morning thinking, oh, I can't live for God. I am so defeated right now. I'm so helpless to live for God. I'm just broken by my sin. I can't do it, Pastor Justin. I can't do it. And I would say to you this morning, you're right. You can't. But there is a God who will give you everything good so that you may walk with him. And so you run to him. And that moment you try to do it on your own, you're right, you fail. But you run to this God who gives everything good to his people and you say, Lord, I'm a failure. I realize, I mean, I'm a redeemed person, but I'm still a failure. I still struggle. I still battle. And left to myself, I'm a miserable wreck. Give me everything good. 
And I don't mean prosperity theology here. I mean every benefit of your grace, as we'll see in a moment, so that I can live for you. I want to walk with you. That's the longing of my heart, but I simply can't do it on my own. Give me everything good. Listen to what he says in this next statement. It's similar but different. Equip me with everything good. And then he just simply says, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. The resurrection screams that God's not left you alone. He works in you everything that's pleasing in his sight. Like Philippians 2.13, for it is God who works in you, both to will and do his good pleasure. Now, don't, don't hear me wrong. We're not robots, but God works in you. And he says, I'm gonna do my work in you. Submit to me. Walk with me. I'll work in you and through you. 2 Corinthians 3.5, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. Okay, let me just explain that. Here's the Apostle Paul. I mean, this is like, if there's a Christian dream team, he is it. And he says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything's come from me. Come on, Paul, just a little bit. I mean, you're pretty bright. Your, your intellect's pretty great. I mean, you've suffered more times than anybody for Jesus, just a little bit. There is no sufficiency in me, he says, but our sufficiency is from God. So everything good in me is from him. And we should be people that just, when somebody says to you, when they compliment something in you, an evidence of grace, be quick to say, it's just from the Lord. If, if you're a patient man, it's Jesus. If you're a generous person, it's Jesus. If you're dying to sin in your life, it's Jesus. Somebody might say, oh, well, you just have it easy. No, no, I don't. And neither do you. We're all in it together, right? Every trial, every temptation common to man. If you're successful, it's just Jesus. It's you submitted to him. You said yes to God and you died to sin. And if you don't, then you're not gonna know that joy of walking with him and God working in you. Look at what he says. He says, Lord, equip me, work in me. But why? I love these two little phrases so that I may do his will and that I would do what's pleasing in his sight. This is the ultimate desire. Redeemed people long to live for the risen Christ. That's the point of Hebrews 3, or 13, 20 and 21. Redeemed people long to live for their risen savior. So he connects the resurrection, he connects God, the father raising him, he connects his leadership as the good shepherd, and he says, Lord, would you help us? Our longing is to live for you. It's really hard. Would you equip us? Would you grant us grace? Would you work in us and through us for your glory that we might please you? Because redeemed people delight in pleasing God. Simply put, folks, if you're redeemed this morning, you delight in pleasing God. Now, I want to make real clear here, there's two kinds of pleasing God. Jesus pleased God for you. You should be happy about that because you can't earn the favor of God. He pleased God for you. He died in your place. He lived the life you could never live and die the death you could never die. He pleased God in your place. And then we couple that with this truth. I want to live a life pleasing to my God, right? Because if you are redeemed by that one savior who pleased God in your place, then your longing will be to live God or live for God in a radical 
way. And that's Hebrews connecting those dots for us. We have been redeemed by the blood of the lamb and we will then live for God by the power of that crucified and risen savior. And so because of Jesus, that's this phrase. It's all through Jesus. There in your Bible, that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. If you take Jesus out of the picture, what misery, what hopelessness. We don't just look to Jesus to get saved and then go on our own. He says, no, 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 no. My life lived to the glory of God is through the risen Christ. It's like my eyes are fixed on him, the author and perfecter of my faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, right? So what do we do? We look to our savior and we say, Lord, I'm just gonna keep looking at my savior and walking with you by your grace and everything else that's happening in the world that can swirl around me, but I'm walking with you. It is through the work and merit and continuing grace of Christ. This is what old theologians called your vital union with Christ. What's the word vital mean? Life. If your vitals are gone, you're dead. Vitals mean life. Your vital union with Christ is your living union. If he is not in you, you're dead. Spiritually, and you will physically die the same. But he says here, I have a vital union with Jesus through Jesus Christ. This Christian life, it begins, it continues in, and it ends with Jesus. And the resurrection proclaims that for us this morning, right? That the Father raised the Son, that we might be in Christ and he in us. And then he just finishes with this. To whom be glory forever and ever, amen? That's connecting us back to the God of peace. This is a kind of a sandwich, if you will. The God of peace, to whom be glory forever. I mean, after a text like this, how could you not say, it's all you. You did it. You, you, Jesus, you came, you died. God, you raised him from the dead. And now I need your help to walk with God because I, I can't. I struggle to do it on my own. I'm a failure on my own. And God, when you do this, you get the glory. It's always you. It's not me saying, oh yeah, I'm a good Christian. I've done a good job this week, this month, this year. It's through Jesus to the glory of God. And so as we wrap up this morning, I just have three simple things in my conclusion for us. Three simple takeaways. Folks, remember this, a dead savior cannot save. A dead savior can't save. And so as we are gonna live out our Christian lives, it's important that when we speak and think of Christ, he is a living savior. Any system that says, well, we believe in Jesus, he just didn't rise. Um, Actually, you don't believe in Jesus because he can't save but a living savior who God raised from the dead can save. So a dead savior cannot save. Remember as we depart that the payment was radically sufficient. There's nothing else for you to do to pay the price for your sin. And the resurrection declares it. And so on this Easter Sunday, let your heart just say, oh God, how I'm thankful. I don't have to go to church. I don't have to do a pilgrimage. I don't have a certain rights and rules I have to follow. Jesus did it all. The the payment was enough. And then this morning, may we find comfort 
that this God who rose Jesus from the dead is both able and willing to give you the grace, to give me the grace to live for him. Isn't that good news? Because of the resurrection, he's able and willing. He's not just able and holding out on you, and he's not willing and incompetent. He's both able and willing. And he says, I'm I'm here for you that you might live for me. So run to me for abundant grace, for everything good, that you might live a life that is pleasing in my sight. So there is hope because of the resurrection. Not hope because, well, it's just what we're supposed to do. We have a happy-go-lucky holiday, right? There's hope, true, lasting hope, hope that saves you. And again, folks, if you're here this morning, you don't know the Savior, you need to turn to him. You must turn from that sin and say, God, I've been hoping in everything that cannot satisfy. And I need to turn to you. But then there are some of you this morning that I, I know that you know Jesus, but you're just in despair. You have no hope. And the resurrection gives you hope, not just for salvation, but to continue living for God, who is both willing and able to care for you. We're gonna finish our service this morning and by praying and singing. And I, I just want you to know that if you wanna talk to... Um, to me or one of our elders afterwards, I'm just gonna be down here. And if you're like, man, I need, I want to know more about Jesus. Or I need to talk because I'm enslaved to sin and I'm hopeless, but I need the hope of the resurrection. Come talk to us this morning and we would love to care for you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that the resurrection declares that Jesus is for us. It declares that he completely satisfied the wrath of God. He was a once for all payment for the sins of humanity. And he rose from the death, conquering the very curse he set in place so that we could be delivered from that curse and we can now know peace with God. Lord, I cry out to you this morning for anybody here who does not know peace with God, may they turn to you and know peace with God. And Father, I pray for those who know you this morning that are just, life is hard and hope is hard to come by. Would they find abundant hope this morning and that the God who raised Jesus from the dead is the God who is eager to give them every good thing and to work in them powerfully that they might live for you and your name. So Father, we thank you that we serve a risen Christ. It's in his name, amen.